Ahoy Mets fans! Welcome to episode 296 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us today. We have a really fun show. It's going to start off with something really cool. I got to talk to Brett Saberhagen this week. Something I couldn't say last week and I'll probably not be able to say next week. But Brett and I talked about his time as a Met, what he thinks of the current Mets starting rotation, and of all things, Burning Man. Check it out. Joining me on the podcast is Cy Young Award winner, baseball legend, and if his Twitter account can be believed, Burning Man enthusiast, Brett Saberhagen. <laughs> Brett, well, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Good to be on. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So, you know, the first question I want to ask you, I, I'm always intrigued by former ball players looking at the current product and what impresses them. And, you know, the Mets have this bevy of starting pitching right now that is just doing such incredible things. So as a former Major League pitcher, what can you say about the Mets' current pitching that maybe the average fan wouldn't glean from watching the games on TV? Well, um, just uh, I, I, you know, I, I love all all their pitchers. Hold on. Excuse me. Got uh, a little dry throat. But um, love all their pitchers. DeGrom is doing an unbelievable job. Um, just set a, a record um, for, uh, uh, what is it, 25, I think, straight games, uh, three or less runs. Uh, yeah, exactly. It, uh, he's doing a great job. Yeah, I, I just I love the way they go about things. I, I love the Little League World Plus Series that. where you saw Thor uh, working with the one little uh, young man that uh, was trying to throw a breaking ball and throwing it improperly and Buster! giving him uh, suggestions on how to throw it so he wouldn't have elbow problems. And, uh, you know, their, their bullpen needs a little work. Um, but uh, <laughs> the biggest thing for me is that if they all could stay healthy, you know, throughout the whole entire year um, and they could score some runs, they're going to be back, uh, back World Series bound again sometime soon. Now, you know, you you had a, a number of phenomenal seasons. And DeGrom is having a season that is pretty unprecedented in recent memory. What has he been doing differently for you this year that has led to this incredible run of success? You know, I, I really don't know, uh, know him that well, but um, I, who knows what it could be. It could be just a little tweak in his mechanics. It could be a little more confidence, um, just kind of coming into his own finally. Um, it could be a, a multiple of things, but, uh, you know, he's, he's a lot of fun to watch. Um, I know he's just out here in LA. That's where I grew up and I still live out in LA. Um, did a good job against the, the Mets, but again, he just comes up a little short. Um, they score runs, uh, usually when he's out of the game, not when he's in the game. Yeah. That's a, it's a real shame because I know how much the win means to the pitcher, even if you know a lot of people inside yeah. baseball, myself included, actually, I think the pitcher win is sometimes an unfair stat for a pitcher. But, you know, it means a lot to the pitcher. What do you actually think about the pitcher win? Is that Do you think that's a fair way to evaluate a pitcher's performance? As a starter, um, it's, it's what you strive for. Um, and he's one of those guys that will go late in the game, which is awesome, because you see a lot of these guys coming out after the third time in the lineup um, – they're not getting deep in the game because of the amount of pitches they're throwing. He's uh, he's going deep in the game. He's he's um, striking out guys, but he's also uh, quality control with pitch pitch uh, pitches. Um, he's uh, a lot of fun to watch, and um, you know it. Uh, his win loss record could be a lot better, having scored a few more runs for him in his starts. 
but yeah, at times, uh, you know, the, I think the starting pitcher is, is more, uh, kind of looked at on ERA and wins and losses. Um, you know, that 20 win goal is always, uh, you know, um, very, uh, um, something important to the starting pitcher. Um, if he can possibly get 20 wins in the season and, um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the closers and, uh, the middle relief guys are kind of judged on different statistics, but yeah, it's, uh, it's something that as a starting pitcher, you always want to get is that W, but if you can't get late in the game, it's tough to get those W's. So unless you're on a high scoring team that uh, is just putting up some, some unbelievable numbers for you. Now, uh, I want to talk to you about playing in New York for a little bit. Cause you know, you started your career in Kansas city, which is one of the smaller markets in baseball. And then you find yourself traded over to the Mets in the largest market in baseball. So just coming from your perspective in terms of, you know, showing up at the ballpark, throwing your game, talking to media, how different was it going from Kansas City to New York City? It was a culture shock uh, for sure because you have two papers in Kansas City while I was there. Um, not a lot of uh, media fighting for, for uh, you know, newspaper uh, uh, clippings, uh, so to speak. Um so, you know, I, I had to grow up very quickly um, once I got to New York. Um, fortunately, I had a few years in already. Um, but um, I really enjoyed my uh, years in New York. I, I, I screwed up a few times uh, with uh, some of the media there. and um, You know, it was, it was a growing. Um, a younger kid kind of finally coming into his own and growing up and kind of realizing, uh, you know, how to uh, – to go about working with the media and not uh, having them as an enemy, but uh, trying to have them as a friend. But um, I had some great times there. I uh, lived out there for eight years. Even when I was with the Red Sox, I, I continued to live out in Long Island. I love the summers out there. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my closest friends, Johnny Franco, is, is still out there, uh, still doing stuff with the Mets. I just talked to him the other day. And um, But uh, the, the Mets organization really uh, was uh, – something that I, I didn't expect to be a part of. But once we got there, um, a lot of us, Eddie Murray, myself, Bobby Bonilla, Jeff Torborg, um, unfortunately, we never put together the type of season I think we were all capable of um, between uh, uh, having off seasons, uh, having some injuries, uh, so on and so forth. But um, I, I was, I think I've, I, well, I know every place I've played, I feel very fortunate. New York really made me grow up as a, as a ball player. You mentioned that 1992 Mets team where there's this incredible influx of talent and, you know, it looks like every aspect of the team has possibly been improved over the offseason and it just turned out to not be what everyone hoped it would be. As a player, how do you keep motivated when you're in that situation and it just seems like everything is going wrong? Well, and again, we had an unbelievable staff and and bullpen. Johnny Franco was our closer. Uh, Doc, myself, Sid Fernandez, David Cohn, um, four pretty good starters right there and just, uh, never put anything together. Um, and and we've heard it, we heard it from the fans and, uh, still kind of hear it that we've never really uh, put anything together when we were all together. But, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, meshing in the clubhouse is, is very important. And, and again, we, we did a lot of stuff together. It wasn't like, um, we were all on different pages, but, um, it just, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that I look back in my career that I wish could have gone differently with, um, our performance out on the field. And, uh, cause we had the ability to do that. Now, speaking of performance in the field, I want to talk to you about your 94 season because you did something insane 
in the 94 season, which is that you had more wins than walks. That season is one of the best control seasons of all time, going back to the very start of baseball. For you, what was working so well that season that allowed you to have that pinpoint control? Did you change up your delivery? Was it pitch selection? Or was it just everything kind of falling together at the right time? Well, it, it's, it's, it, it is my favorite stat out of all the stats that I have uh, accomplished. Um, yeah, more, more wins than walks. Kershaw did it, um, I think, two years ago. Um, he had, uh, um, I'm not sure if he had the same amount of innings. Uh, ours was a strike short in the year, right. so um, no World Series that year. So um, I think both of us kind of did it in about the same amount of innings pitch because he was hurt. Um, a couple of years ago and didn't have a, a complete season uh, because of injuries, but um, it's, it's a stat that I look upon and I really cherish. Um, it was funny because I don't know, probably uh, right after the all-star break, Mel Stoudemire, our pitching coach said, we're not intentionally walking anybody. You've got more wins than walks. We're going to try to keep it that way uh, throughout the rest of the season. So um, do not uh, look over for uh, walking the, uh, uh, the eighth place hitter in the lineup to get to the pitcher. Um, we're going to just uh, work on trying to keep that walks below uh, the wins, and uh, we accomplished that. It's still so incredible to me. It's really fun. It's really fun to talk about that. Um, you know, looking back on your career, you had incredible success in Kansas City. You came over to New York and had incredible success there. Is there um, is there a difference in in sort of how a small town versus a big city treats their stars, you know, could you could you feel the city of Kansas City being more invested because it is a smaller town, or did you feel that in New York it was, you know, I guess I'm just asking in terms of how your interaction with the fans went, what's the difference between a big city? We talked about the press before, but from a fan's perspective, you know, big yeah. city versus small city. You know, it, it's pretty cool when you're um, recognized um, in your particular city. And I can still kind of go back to Kansas City and be recognized because I still do a lot of stuff back in Kansas City. But when you're recognized in a big city, um, it's it's even more special because uh, uh, it, it's the, the passion. Um, I, I, I talk about this all the time. The passion for sports back east uh, is just incredible. Not that the Midwest or uh, the West Coast doesn't have passion for their sports, but it is, it's, it's, yeah. to put it in perspective, I went to opening day probably about six years ago at Dodger Stadium. And it seemed just like game, say, 65 of the season. It didn't feel like opening day to me as a, as a spectator. Now, if you go to opening day back east, it's a holiday. It's everybody's out of school. Everybody just can't wait for that first game of the season. Um, it's just a, a different passion for the for the fans back east. And um, you, to tell you a funny story, when I was with the Red Sox, and uh, like I said, I was still living in Long Island. Um, so I drive into the stadium. I'm pitching against uh, the Mets that night in an interleague game, and um, I come. I get out of my car, and there's a guy walking. Uh, um, kind of parallel with our uh, where we parked out in the outfield with our Yankee gear on and then he said kick the crap out of those guys tonight Brett and I kind of look over at him I go we're in the same division he goes I know I hate you guys but I hate the mess even more so <laughs> it just shows you how much passion that the, the New York fans the East Coast fans 
have and um they just uh they wear it on their sleeves they absolutely do you know it's funny this past year i was in my office on opening day and my boss walks past and goes what are you doing here it's opening day so you know there's definitely that holiday uh mentality of of baseball on the east coast for sure um absolutely so, so i want to ask you a little bit about sort of you know ways that the game has been changing you know we see a lot more emphasis put on different sort of statistical analysis we see things like the shift coming more into play we hear about things like launch angles. I know a lot of that stuff can be pretty easily. Uh, I think a lot of that stuff was was just as important when you were playing. It was just called something different, you know. But for you, are these changes to baseball something that you're embracing, or do you wish people were talking about baseball the way they were, let's say, fifteen, twenty years ago? Well, uh, there's a few things. So um, I don't embrace the starting pitcher not being able to go past five, six innings. Um, it just, it drives me crazy. Um, uh, sometimes it's because, uh, you know, the numbers indicate that, you know, he's going around the lineup for the third time. Some of it's because he's not throwing quality strikes and he's up in his pitch count. There's a lot of things that goes, goes into that. That's one. Uh, the, the one that I, I don't mind is the guys trying to hit more home runs and RBIs and the strikeouts are going way up. I remember at one time Steve Malboni had, a little over 100 strikeouts in the season, and he was very upset that he ended up leading, you know, the, the league in strikeouts. Um, uh, Bonesy was a, a gentle giant, loved Bonesy, but now you got guys striking out over 100 times by the All Star break. It's just crazy numbers. Not not as many uh, guys taking pitches, um, it seems like. But that's one step that I don't mind the shift. Is, is something that I don't know why guys don't, uh, you know, lay down a few more bunts or work on trying to go the other way a little bit right. more. Um, uh, I know as a pitcher, uh, I don't know if I would like that or not, um, having them play a shift behind me because it seems like it takes away the outer part of the plate where I like to live. Um, and guys just putting it, uh, putting the ball on the, the, the bat on the ball and, and going the other way with it. So I'd have to, uh, experience that a few times. And if it, if it, wasn't uh, playing into my type of pitching style, then I might have to ask the, the coaches and stuff to, hey, let's let's can that shift. And if they get a hit through that side of the infield, it's on me. Um, but um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of changes that um, I don't mind. There's a, there's some of them that I don't care for. I, I think that's a pretty fair approach. So uh, before I let you go, I want to talk about something you're doing with the USO in a few weeks. You are involved yeah. in the USL event involving George Brett, Reggie Sanders, and Mike Sweeney, you know, four royal greats. And uh, so tell us about that event a little bit. Well, uh, I got a, an email probably about two or three months ago asking um, if I was interested in going and doing a USO tour. And before they could say any more, I said yes. Um, I've gone and visited the troops, but it was in Norfolk, Virginia. It wasn't overseas. Um, and I really got a great appreciation for the blanket that we live under and the protection that they give us and how smart and intelligent um, all our troops are. Um, I saw them practicing drills and doing things that um, you don't really think that they do all the time. For uh, example, um, they've got uh, uh, a battleship with a, a helicopter landing on it in the high winds and the high seas, um, knocks a helicopter over uh, onto the ship. Um, you've got different crews. You've got a medical crew that's got to be there. You've got a fire crew that has to be there. Um, you've got to have uh, guys getting ready to go over uh, into the water if uh, guys are, uh, you know, if the helicopter happens to go over. So 
it was just all hands on deck. Very cool to watch. Um, but with the, this going over to the Middle East, it's uh, going to be very special. We're going to visit uh, some of the some of the troops from uh, Missouri and uh, watch a baseball game with them. It'll be uh, early morning over there, um, about one o'clock in the morning. Um, but also uh, visit uh, a bunch of other troops and say hello and uh, interact with them. And uh, you know, it's it's if you can give back and do something like this. Um, it uh it's very warmful uh feeling uh and uh, i i'm really looking forward to it um and uh you know uh seeing uh some uh smiles putting some smiles on their face you know after these uh some of these men and women have been away from home for a very long time that's very cool and uh lastly i would be uh i'd be remiss if uh from my my friends at amazing avenue if i didn't ask about this for those of us that have never been to burning man why should we go <laughs> um it's got a little bit of everything for everybody um you uh i really went for the art um and for uh, uh it's just to see some of these art cars that are out on the playa uh you're gonna get a little dusty it's gonna be in uh, just about all your uh uh crevices that uh, that are covered up um but it's uh it's just pretty cool to see um how all this stuff gets into uh black rock desert and once they leave there's not a trace of anybody ever being there um a lot of passion goes into it um it's it's something that i just really wanted to see basically because of the art but there's a lot of other things that go on that uh if you like i love new york i love the people watching there i love la going into la and watching people if you like people watching this is a place to do it as well (laughs) Now I was I was told I have to ask you who you were rooting for in the 2015 World Series, but I'm going to spare you that question on a Mets podcast. So, uh, <laughs> Brett Saberhagen, thank you for joining me today. You know what? I was uh, to give you an answer. I was pulling for the Royals, but I uh, uh, it, it's been so long since uh, you know they were uh, champions. But I know the the Mets were right behind them with 86. But I was going to be happy with either team that had won that championship. I, you know, it's something that I pull for all my former teams. And uh, when you have two teams that you played for, it makes it a little tougher. Um, you can't lose in that aspect. So either way it would have went, I was going to be very happy for the city and for the fans. Um, and hopefully it happens again. And I'm always pulling for the underdog. I love seeing Houston win last year. Absolutely. Uh, I know the, the Dodger fans here in, in L.A. were going crazy. They were coming out of the woodworks. And um, they were, you know, I heard a few times, well, we haven't won it in so long. And, yeah, it's like 1988 you guys won it. Houston has never won a championship, so deal with it. So I, I, I love seeing you know, my Cubbies. I grew up a Cub fan um, as a kid. My first big league game I ever went to was at Wrigley Field, and it was great to see them win. So I'm always pulling for the teams that haven't won it in a while. So uh, hopefully the Mets will get back on that uh, track. Um, I know they will. Um, hopefully it's sooner than later. Hey, everybody. This is Steve Saipa. And the minor league season is over, so this is going to be our last update and play of the week segment for the 2018 season. And in the next couple of weeks, I'll go over how all the affiliates did in more depth. But for now, since that really isn't the focus here, just some quick summaries. The 51s, Las Vegas 51s, ended their season at 71 and 69, which is actually pretty impressive given the fact that they were under 500 for most of the year and at points like really below 500. But the Mets are leaving Las Vegas, and the team is rebranding, 
so the Las Vegas 51s are now officially a defunct team. And I'm not going to miss having to stay up to like 1, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning for the games to finish. But I am going to miss listening to Russ Langer. He is a great announcer. And I am going to miss Cosmo, their Jar Jar Binks ripoff of a mascot. And I am going to miss the, the baseball alien, which is one of my favorite minor league logos. But for anybody that's interested, there's actually a sale going online um, on 51's merch. And that hat, which is a nice hat, is like 20 bucks. So I'm going to snag one. And anyone that wants one, this is your last chance. Because once they're sold out, that's it. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies went 64 and 72 for the year. So that's a pretty big drop-off as compared to last year when they went 85 and 55. But let's be honest, that just was not a good team that they were fa- uh, fielding. Especially after Peter Alonso and Jeff McNeil got promoted. There was a game I went to early in the year, in like mid-June. And the starting lineup was Josh Allen, Kevin Taylor, Levi Michael, Patrick Mazeka, Johan Urania, John Mora, Matt Oberstey, Tim Tebow, and Joey Wong. So if you know who all those guys are... Exactly. And if you've never heard of half of them, also exactly. St. Lucie Mets, they finished the first half with a 27-40 and record, and they finished the second half with a 27-36 and record, making them 54-76 and on the year. St. Lucie had a couple of top prospects and guys to watch on the team, but all in all, there were a lot of disappointments. Um... Andres Jimenez had a great year, and he really cemented himself as a top 100 prospect in baseball, and Justin Dunn found himself after struggling there last year. But really, those are the only bright spots for the entire season. Uh, Desmond Lindsay, who is the only you know prospect bad on that team, he was hurt, and he didn't do very well at the plate for most of the season. And nobody else really had a good enough year to put themselves on the map as kind of fringe prospects, so... It was just not a good year for St. Lucie. The Columbia Fireflies, they finished the first half with the 34-33 and 33 record, and then the second half with the 30-37 and 37 record, giving them a 64-70 and 70 record overall. And when the season began, it, it, it looked like the Columbia Fireflies were going to be a team that would go places because that pitching rotation and that bullpen looked pretty stacked. But just like last season, the offense was questionable, and that gave those pitchers very little margin of error. And sure enough, you know, they just barely eked a record over 500 in the first half. And even though they did, they weren't exactly relevant. They were basically, they ended in fourth place, five games behind uh, the Rome Braves. And then in the second half, all those, well, not all, but most of those pitchers and top performers got promoted. So sure enough, the Cola Flies did a lot worse. The Brooklyn Cyclones, they finished the year with a 40-35 and 30 rec- 35 record, which is good for second place in the New York Penn League McNamara division. And when the year started, the Cyclones didn't exactly look like that great of a team. There were a couple of interesting players um, starting the season with the team, but none were particularly highly regarded. Uh, Christian James is probably the biggest name. He was the 20th, ho- 20th top prospect. And additional players from the 2018 draft were assigned there. But again, none of those players were particularly highly regarded either. But Brooklyn got off to a hot start. And by the end of August, they found themselves basically a few games out of first and in a three-way tie for the wildcard spot between the Stanton Yankees and the Auburn Double Days. And eventually it came down to the last game of the year to see who would get that wildcard spot. Brooklyn needed to win and Auburn needed to lose. 
And the Cyclones did do their part. They won. Walk off. Exciting. But early on in that game, the Double Days finished theirs, and they won. So that was that, unfortunately. And it was a fun, exciting season. And it was their first winning one since 2014. So hopefully those dark times, those troubles are over. The Kingsport Mets also had a fun, exciting season. They ended the year at 33-35, and 35, but because they ended in second place in the Appalachian League West Division, they made the playoffs. Uh, they lost the first game, but they won the second, and they forced a, a Game 3 in the three-game series, but unfortunately they weren't able to overcome the Elizabethan Twins, who had been in first place for most of the year and kind of owned uh, Kingsport. But the core of that Kingsport team, Luis Santana, Mark Vientos, Jared Kalanick, uh, Shereven Newton, they're all really good. And the four of them should probably jump from rookie ball to low A next season. So the Columbia Fireflies might actually have a strong offense for a change. And it really sucks that uh, the Fireflies are not going to be coming north to play against the Blue Claws next season. So a trip down south may be in order. And finally, the GCL Mets went 23-28 and 28 for the year. And I didn't find the team particularly exciting this season. Last year, I thought it was a pretty exciting team. But this year, it just didn't feel like they had that... I don't really know how to say that. Marquee player or two. Um, Ronnie Mauricio had a solid season as a 17-year-old. And Simeon Woods Richardson was very impressive on the mound. But that was pretty much it. There is plenty of talent, though, on that team. Don't get me wrong. So the Kingsport Mets and the Brooklyn Cyclones should be set next year. But uh, hopefully we'll see some more standout performances, some standout individual performances next year. And now our pitcher of the week, and that individual is Columbia Fireflies right-hander Tony Debrell. He started two games this week, and just for completion's sake, I'm including the Sunday and Monday that ended the 2018 season because really there's no point and having a play of the week next week based on just two games. So he pitched two games, and he tossed 11 in the third innings, allowing one run on four hits. He walked five, and he struck out 14. So with his last start, DeBrell ended his 2018 season with a 3.50 ERA in 131 innings. He allowed 112 hits, he walked 54, and he struck out 147. And those 147 strikeouts were tied for the most in the South Atlantic League, tied with Lakewood right-hander Spencer Howard and Greenville Drive southpaw Jonathan Diaz. I'm not fully sure why he wasn't promoted to St. Lucie when David Peterson and Anthony Kay and Joe Cavallaro were, but one possible reason that I thought of was because keeping him down in Columbia would keep him paired with pitching coach Jonathan Hurst and... Maybe that would be a good thing, and then it could be a coincidence, or maybe there's actually something that to that logic, but Dubrell did improve on the second half. Um, in 11 starts in the first half, he had a 3.67 ERA in 61 in the third innings, allowing 48 hits, walking 33, and striking out 72. And then in the second half, he made 12 starts, and he had a 3.36 ERA in 69 and two-thirds innings, allowing 64 hits, walking 21, and striking out 75. So everything pretty much stayed the same in his second half, except for the walks. Um, in a handful more innings, he basically walked 10 fewer guys. Uh, could be coincidence, but at least on paper, you know, we see that he did improve one of the weaker parts of his game, is his control. He did walk seven more batters in the second half. He walked, uh, he hit seven 
as compared to two. But not having, you know, gone and watched every single one of his games and not knowing the context, I'm going to overlook those wild pitches. So DeBrell is pretty much a lock to start in St. Lucie next year. He should have been pitching with them this year, you know, personally, but whatever. And hopefully he pitches his way into Binghamton mid-year, kind of like Justin Dunn did this year. Now, early in the season, actually before the season began, I made a prediction that DeBrell would pitch his way into the Mets' top 10 prospect list next year. And with the season in the books, um, it's going to be close. Uh, In no order, I think Andres Jimenez, Peter Alonso, Jared Klenick, Mark Vientos, Justin Dunn, Franklin Kilame, Anthony Kay, and David Peterson, they are the no-doubt guys in the top 10 list. So that's eight guys, meaning that there's two more spots. Guys like Chris Flexen, Tomas Nido, um, Nido, excuse me, Luis Guillerme, Ronnie Mauricio, Luis Santana, those guys are in the next tier along with DeBrell. So there's going to be two more names from that list that's going to make up the top 10. So... We'll have to see how those other guy, the other guys on our minor league team feel. But for me, I know he's going to be on my list at 10, 9 or 10. I feel like his upside is there. He's not too old. He has a somewhat proven track record in here now. So we will see, I guess. And now our hit of the week is Binghamton Rumble Ponies right-hander Johan Urania. In his 10 games this week, he hit 410, 465, 769, notching 16 hits, 2 doubles, and 4 homers, while drawing 4 walks and striking out 10 times. Every so often, a player just kind of has a week that makes you take a step back and just appreciate it in the way that Hank Hill would. You know, he just watch it and say, yup. And that's how I feel about Urena's week this week. He had... Started, he got it started. He went two uh, for three with a double. Then the next night, he had that historic game. He went three for five with three home runs, and he set a new club record for most RBI in a game. Then the next night, he went one for three, but that one hit was another homer. Then he went one for three, 0 for three, one for four the next couple of games, but then he broke out again on September 1st with a five for six game. And then he went one for four the next night and finished out the season going two for four. So Urania quietly has had a solid, if unspectacular, season. He hit 261, 324, 418 in 123 games in his first go-through at AA. But the unspectacular part is kind of the problematic bit because he's not a spring chicken in prospect years anymore. He just turned 24 a few days ago, so he just finished his age 23 season and he's going to be having his age 24 season next year. So he was initially known for his raw power, but that power really hasn't translated into in-game power. And I'm not fully sure why. Uh, The splits haven't really changed. Uh, His batted ball profile has actually improved. He hit about 10% fewer ground balls this year as opposed to 2017, and about 10% more fly balls. But the power just really hasn't been there. Uh, Part of that is probably his problems against breaking balls, and his continued below-average ability to recognize them. Strikeouts, obviously, you know, they're not the only outcome that a good uh, pitch can have. It could also induce poor contact or less-than-optimal contact, you know, weak dribblers and pop-ups. 
And if I were a betting man, I'd bet that a lot of Urania's hits uh, this year, not not the actual hits, but a lot of his contacts, I should say, were things in that mold, you know, off of curveballs and sliders. That's why you see his fly ball rate increasing. But if the balls are not hit, you know, particularly well, it's a fly ball, yes, but, you know, not a home run or one hit with power and authority. So Urania has uh, seven minor league seasons under his belt, so he's eligible to become a, a minor league free agent this year. And, you know, as an outfielder, he hasn't been terrible, and he'll be a lot younger than some of those fringy quad A players that played in Vegas this year. So, I, you know, I'd rather see him over Zach Borensteins and the Matt Dendeckers and the uh, Patrick Hivlihans of the world, you know. Like I was saying about Neville Chris Matt a few weeks ago, from covering the guys for so many years, you definitely get attached a bit and biased, and you'd rather see them get the opportunities and chances over other guys. Uh, Keith Lehan, for example, he had a really good season, and it's not like he's that baseball old or over the hill or anything, but if it came between him coming back, you know, or Johan Urena being an, an outfielder on the Syracuse Mets next season, I'd go with Urena every time. Just everything else aside, Urania's a Met. He's always been, and having followed him, you know, since the beginning, I want to see him make, uh, get to the top of the minor league ladder here. So that's, uh, that's it for 2018. All in all, season, the system took a few steps back, um, a few years ago, but they've taken some steps forward this year. Uh, it's still not that great. But thanks to some trades, a few good draft picks, and uh, a few guys stepping forward in the development, it's better than where it was when the season started. So I am Steve Saiba, and I'll be back next week to go over how all the Mets affiliates did in 2018 in detail. of a, a pretty sweet run of Mets pitching. Uh, specifically, the last week or so has been really, really impressive. We've had a couple of great DeGrom starts, although that's you know pretty par for the 2018 course. But we've also had really nice pitching from Mats and Wheeler and Syndergaard through a gem this weekend after having a, a pretty rough stretch. And until last night, Jason Vargas had looked the best. He's up to 2018. So overall, how are your feelings about the pitching as it stands on September fifth, twenty eighteen? The starting pitching. Um, you know, uh, it's it's hard not to be encouraged. You know, I you know as as you said, seeing Cinder, seeing that you know, vintage is an odd term to use for a twenty six year old <laughs> or twenty that vintage Syndergaard. Uh, you know, that was just a delight to watch. Uh, yeah, Wheeler's been a constant uh, pleasant surprise to me. I, I feel like I had mentally slightly checked out on him. Uh, you know, like I was definitely not in the trade Wheeler at all cost camp, but, you know, I, I thought like a smart, if, if someone was going to pony up more for him because he was had an additional year of control, I was kind of like, eh, I've, you know, I've seen, you know, maybe this is like the really smart move you know, jump on that bandwagon before he turns back into a pumpkin or I should, or an injured pumpkin in a med pitcher <laughs> parlance, uh, you know, 
But maybe, you know, maybe it turns out we would have been outsmarting ourselves. Maybe it'd be like the <clears throat> Murphy thing all over, right, yeah. you know. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I mean, Jason Vargas, uh, you know, anything that is less earned runs than innings pitched, I'll kind of take. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 he's an un, a unfair punching bag for me a little bit sometimes. Uh, but, you know, he'll be here next year. So uh, if he can show improvement, that's great. But uh, yeah, De, you know, DeGrom's like, you know, moving from, you know, one of the best pitchers in baseball to kind of otherworldly best pitcher in baseball historical season, you know, is encouraging. Uh, you know, it's in regard, like, you know, I, I you know, kind of mentioned in the recap of the game, like, he wasn't having that bad a year for someone who everyone was kind of saying, oh, this is, you know, we haven't seen the vintage Noah, you know, he's... You know, obviously it's, you know, maybe slightly unfair expectations or, you know, just we know he's got that ability. Uh, so seeing that again was great. I mean, it's hard not to look at it, you know, and as we said kind of before this podcast and, st you know, start thinking it's a trap because it's hard not to see this good of starting pitching from, you know, three, four out of, the, you know, four out of the five members of the rotation. You know, you have like a possibility of Seth Lugo, you know, uh, he's very valuable in the bullpen, but they've floated that idea of him being a starter. It's hard not to be like, wow, like the, the, that's the bones of a solid team. But, you know, we've, we've had that thought before and it hasn't always worked out. So, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's fun to watch. I mean, it's made baseball fun to watch when I think a month or two ago people were probably looking at this team like, you know, what am I watching for through August and September? And, uh, and uh, you know, it's it's made it fun for me. So I, I, how do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much feel the same way. You know, I, I was saying before we started to record, I was going to use the beginning of August as sort of an arbitrary starting point for this, right? Because uh, pretty much as of uh, Matt's came back on August 16th. So since then, it, the rotation has been pretty set. And when you take a look, it's just been remarkably consistent. You know, Syndergaard had a couple of rough starts in there. He had three starts in August where he gave up four or more earned runs. And, you know, as you, no more, just four earned runs. He did it three times in August. But aside from uh, that, no Met pitcher that was uh, not named Jason Vargas gave up more than four earned runs in a start. In the entire month of August. Wow, that is that is nice. But yeah, I mean it's it, it's rare, you know, uh, and and obviously those numbers don't mean everything, you know. The bullpen could have imploded in all of those games and whatever. But even even Vargas, Vargas only Vargas didn't give up more than four earned runs in August either. Wow. Yeah, I mean, no, he's been he's been good lately. I mean, and obviously he can have those stretches. He was he was an all star last year, right? Uh, you know, partly wins based, but uh, you know, you know, I, it's just that, like, yeah, it was just an odd contract. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and you know, the, the Mets are a team that have so historically been built on pitching that that's I think that that's just where all of our minds go when talking about successful Mets teams. Sure. You start thinking about the pitching first, right? Yeah. What's the pitching? What it, you know. What can the Mets do with their starters? And I don't think that you can expect a stretch like this for 
you know, for an entire season. But I think that you're getting to see, first of all, you're getting to see, as you put it, DeGrom going from great to otherworldly. That's that's a big jump. Mm. The second thing is you're seeing Wheeler and to a certain degree Mats, although not to the same degree as Wheeler, go from uh, possible star to actual star or, or possible you know, I, I hate the word star. Possible above average producer to actual above average producer. You're seeing somebody take their potential and finally show something uh, with it. Then you're seeing a guy like Syndergaard, who's again had an up and down year, but you're just you're reminded of what he can do when everything comes together. And with Vargas, you know, look, I do not want Vargas on this team next year. I think even if Vargas somehow tosses three sh- complete game shutouts to end the season. I think the Mets are better off with another fifth starter with Jason Vargas. But we know it's the Mets. We know he's going to be the fifth starter for the team. And the the second half has been a much nicer a much nicer Vargas half season than the first half. And like you mentioned Lugo, you know, I, I think that there's there's every chance that he winds up as a permanent bullpen piece for the Mets, and that's okay. He, you know, he pitched a great inning tonight. He's been overall excellent this season out of the bullpen. Gazelman has not been bad out of the bullpen. I, I think, you know, to use again, use your words, the bones of a good pitching staff are here already. I think that they need to sign a starting pitcher of some sort for insurance, whether that's somebody who can get to a minor league deal, somebody who can be a swing man, or if you feel like, you know. Like maybe Vargas is that swing man in the future. Yeah, you know, I don't know exactly how you do that, but I think you need to sign another starting pitcher or two to minor league deals just because you need to right now, just for insurance purposes. That makes sense. I think the Mets are going to have to go out and spend on the bullpen this off season, and that's always a risky proposition. Yeah, uh, just because of the sort of the fungibility of relief pitchers the extreme difference in performance from season to season. And also, you know, I, I feel like uh, when was the last time the Mets signed as a free agent? And I'm not counting, like, they extend, they they traded for Blevins and then they signed him. I don't mean something like that. I mean a brand-new free agent signing. What was the last good brand-new Mets bullpen free agent signing? Uh Billy Wagner, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe. Um, you know, it's, oh God, it just feels like, you know, I feel like I'm being a true Met fan and just like my mind's just, you know, pop disasters are just popping up left and right in my head. Like I'm not even thinking of a decent one. I mean, when I, maybe this again shows our, our relative age and sort of when we came up as Mets fans, but I'm trying to think of like recent, uh, bullpen free agent signings, and I'm thinking of people like Scott Schoenweiss mm-hmm. and uh, Braden Looper Oof, yeah. and and uh, um, DJ Carrasco. Yep. And just the, these, you know, not <laughs> these uh, <laughs> these non All Star Mets uh, relief pitchers. So you know, it's just it's something that this team has historically seemed to have a hard time um, signing. Mm-hmm. And so that gives me a little bit of pause. But, you know, last year the Mets traded 
tons of people. It seems like every trade they got back a bullpen piece. Mm-hmm. And we've seen some of those this year in Drew Smith and Jacob Rame. But I don't know if there are too many pieces in that bullpen that I'd be excited to bring back next year. Uh, is Who from the Major League roster do you feel should be a lock for a bullpen spot next year? Ooh, um, I mean, uh, Lugo and Gesellman. And, and if he's back, Jerry Blevins. Uh, even Jerry Blevins, I wouldn't, you know, if he were not a free agent, I wouldn't say full-on lock. I'd just be like, you know, he's he had a rough start of the year. But um, I don't think anyone's really – it sounded like, the, you know, it sounded like they were a little high on Drew Smith. Uh, and, you know, I, I've probably seen more flashes from him than the other guys you've mentioned, like uh, Rame or – you know, even the other pieces they traded for, who we've seen little of, like Bautista, you know, I don't see how any of them have, you know, flat out earned, you know, like you, I guess you could hope Drew Smith earns his way on. You could hope uh, Zamora, you know, is a second lefty or, you know, a second loogie or... Uh, Bachelor, maybe, showing something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like, they're definitely not... You know, it's that weird thing. There's just so many of them. And, like, you know, there are all those questions about, are they on the 40-man? Are they taking up room? Can we hold on to them all? I mean, none of them have, like, made me flat-out disqualified. <laughs> you know, there's no one that I'm, you know, having that. You know, you said, like, going back, like, when you have that, like, Doug Sisk, <laughs> Scott Show and Wife, yeah. like, yeah. please don't please don't say that person's name. I don't want to see them in a game and you met uniform ever again. But none of them have made me like, all right, this is another clear bullpen piece. You know, they're they're they've shown me enough that I'm like, if there's room in the roster on the forty man, if you know, bring him in, let him compete. But kind of as you said, uh, not enough. You know, whereas with the starting pitching, I I would agree with you that you know you you can't just have five five and a half starters and, and then if you're moving Lugo you know then you've created a probably a gaping more gaping hole in the bullpen they, they they definitely need a starter but you could you know you could squint and be a Pollyanna and say oh they have these great starters and they're healthy and Vargas is the fifth starter and he's you know a reliable innings eater when he's not giving up a run an inning so we don't need a starter you know again getting it's a also a frustrating thing where we have a limited, seemingly limited budget. Uh, I don't see a scenario where, you know, even though you're right that there's such a, seems like such a, you know, volatile field, I don't see a scenario where they can't bring in at least one. You know, I, I would say, like, you know, one bullpen guy that's like a premium type, you know, bullpen arm that you really pony up for and another Swarzak type, you know, Here's someone who, you know, had a good year or two, you know, again, we discussed that and we, you know, discussed Sandy and other stuff like, you know, Swarzak, you know, seemed like a good process, seemed like a good idea, uh, you know, and maybe next year he is like, you know, I mean, he, he I'm sure he'll, again, because of money and that he flashed a good year, he'll, he'll have a place, I would think. But, you know, I, I feel like they need to bring in a couple of people and, you know, make it a bit of a free-for-all and treat it like a more effective, hopefully, like they did this year, like, you know, modern, you know, I feel like modern teams like the Dodgers are doing where 
you burn someone out, you send them down for a day or two, and, you know, next man up, next fresh arm, uh, and have, like, a roster of them. I, I feel like, you know, as an older baseball fan, like, it's taken me a while to adapt to the, you know, bullpen is as, or perhaps in some cases more important, you know, is an equal component in roster building. Like, I think when you make me watch a playoff series, I'm still kind of like, oh, the Astros, look at that starting pitching. I mean, who can be? Right. But that's not, or the Indians, you know, and but that's not, you know, realistic anymore. And I, I think, yeah, great as the starting pitching looks, you're absolutely right that, you know, pieces need to be added to the bullpen. <laughs> Especially, and this is something that I tend to harp on, and so I, my apologies, listeners, but I don't think that aside from, you know, aside from a Manny Machado or a, or a Bryce Harper or a player of that caliber, I don't really see a place on the Mets to substantially improve their offense this offseason. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just, you know, let's run this down yet again. They're not going to sign a third baseman, more than likely, because you have Frazier there. Right. They're not going to sign a, a shortstop because you have Rosario there. Mm-hmm. They're not going to sign a second baseman because you have McNeil there, hopefully. Right. And you have about five guys <laughs> who should be playing first base. <laughs> so, you know, take that as you will. Then you've got Cespedes, Bruce, Conforto, Nimmo, Ligaris, and maybe Austin Jackson in the outfield. Mm-hmm. You've got Plawecki and Darno and Tomas Nito behind the plate. Now, if there were a, a phenomenal catcher out there, I think that would be a, a logical place to upgrade. Mm-hmm. But I don't know with the Mets budget and the available catchers out there that they're going to do so. I think you can make a case for upgrading at first base, but they're not going to do that. Um, and they shouldn't do that because Peter Alonso deserves a chance to show what he can do at the major league level. Yeah. So I don't know where you improve the team all that much offensively in the offseason. So if you're not going to improve the starting pitching much, and you're not going to improve the offense much, the only places really to improve are the bullpen and the bench. And the bench is what I thought was going to be the Mets' big strength this year. Mm-hmm. At the start of the season, I kept going on and on about how deep the bench was. And we saw how quickly that went away. Yeah. So, you know, maybe those are some areas to improve. But I don't know if improving the bench and the bullpen are enough to get the Mets over that hump for next year. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I know, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, we were talking about, like, the pitching and the, you know, seeing the, you know, oh, God, it's, you can, you can squint, you know, and, yeah, be that overly optimistic Met fan and be like, you know, it's all turning around, it's, we, we could do this in 2019, and, you know, I, I mean, the one thing I like is that, you know, four of those players, you know, five, if you include Alonzo, who may or may not get a fair shot, are young. I, I at least like the idea that I think it's a little less, it's less unrealistic <laughs> to uh, hope for improvement from like a Rosario who, you know, like if, if that was, if Todd, Fra- yeah, not, I mean, we know what Todd Frazier is and I think he could be better, but you know, uh, yeah, it could be better next year. Uh, but you know, seeing Rosario improve, like, you know, makes you think that's could be sustainable. Seeing McNeil come up, and do this well, you know, in what's not that small a sample size anymore. Uh, you know, like, you, you hope, like, this could be, like, a Nimmo scenario where, the, you know, at, at least young players have more of a tendency to improve. And, like, one of the things that, you know, has always frustrated me is, you know, the Mets seem to always 
building this equation of like, well, if Jay Bruce hits 36 again, and if this happens, right. and if this guy stays healthy, and if, you know, all of these scales balance, we're a playoff team. You know, I, I feel slightly more comfortable with those ifs with, with younger players who, you know, might be healthier and might be on more of a curve where improvement's realistic. Uh, so, you know, yes, I, because I agree with you, like, I hope McNeil is the second baseman. You know, I, I'm really encouraged with what I've seen from Rosario the last few weeks or month, uh, at least. Um, I, I, it seems even more exacerbated to me that they haven't brought up Alonzo and been like, you know, screw it, let's, let's, let's get him 50 to, you know, 100 at bats. Let, you know, let's see how, how bad the defense is um, from what. Well, yeah. did you see what he did last night? I did, yeah. Yeah. So for the, for those that, that didn't see, so last night was the last night ever of Las Vegas 51's baseball. They are moving to the suburbs of Vegas. They are changing their name, and they will have a new Major League affiliate. So this is the last game at the stadium. It was a, The Mets were down by a run, and Alonso came up and hit a moonshot to win the game for the for the 51s. Yes. And not that you should ever call up somebody based on one day's performance. I'm not saying that. Mm-hmm. But come on, guys. Yeah. What else does he have to do? It, absolutely. And also, also I, guess, I guess it's not really that helpful plugging the website on the podcast, but uh, Jonathan's article was amazing. Did you? Yes, it was. Yeah, I mean, just that eyewitness account. Like, yeah, like that That actually got me, you know, like, damn it, why is he not called up right now? Like, you just, <laughs> you know, felt like I was there and it was, yeah. Um, you know, it just, you know, again, McNeil is encouraging, but like, it's bizarre. Yeah, I hate, you know, you mentioned about Vargas, like, he shouldn't be the fifth starter. Uh, he's probably, he's going to be the fifth starter because the Mets and, you know, money. Like, I, I find myself, I, you know, it's, it's impossible. I find it impossible to root against the Mets. Like, even today, like, Zach Wheeler winning was not good for my fantasy baseball playoffs. But I, I can't do it. I can't root against the Mets. But, right, yeah. But I do get a little, like, every time Austin Jackson dumps, dunks another double and like I hear you know Gare and Ron like you know it's, it's been really useful I'm just like no no like <laughs> you know I don't want to root against him he's in he's in our laundry but you know sometimes I am like <clears throat> maybe it'd be better if he just tanks and maybe it'd be better if Jason Vargas gets lit up so much that they have no choice but to you know address these roster issues like you know it's Right. Yeah, we have no outfield depth, but there's no reason, like, yeah, like trade. Yeah, you know, we've talked before, yeah, you know, about the Batista trade, uh, you know, before the podcast. And like, you know, I like Joey Bats, but like seeing him play regularly, it was like, what is the point of this? Um, other people should be getting these at bats. Unless the point of him playing regularly was to find a trade partner for him, there should be no reason he's playing regularly. Yeah. And who knows who the who knows? This might be ah, uh, my dad would kill me. <laughs> One of my dad's favorite trivia questions is, "Who's the only player to be traded for himself?" Ooh. And there was there was a player years ago who was traded, and the he, the return was a player to be named later. Uh-huh. And at the end of the season, he was the player to be named later, <laughs> traded back to his original club. So maybe Batista's coming back to us. Who knows? Nice. Um, <laughs> but you know, we have no idea what the return is for that trade. Sure. Um, but. You had to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, 
I was hoping for a little more like pre-August 31st activity. I, you know, I, I know the returns weren't going to be great, but you know, why not trade Blevins? You know, if, if, if there was an offer there, you know, for something small, uh, you know, you never know what, what that piece could develop into. I mean, it's a, it's a lottery ticket, but you know, is the 69th or 72nd win, you know, that much more important or like I said just get bring up another one of these you know double triple-a relievers let them let them get some innings in the majors uh, you know yeah I, I think you had a trade Batista you know <clears throat> who, who knows what the return will be it probably will be marginal or meaningless I, I hated even seeing cash considerations in there because I was like oh you know that'll that'll set off everyone's uh, will pawn red flags uh, rightly so uh, but yeah, I, you know, even I think I said to you before the podcast, even if their stated reason of, you know, do yeah you know, a little, like a little bit doing right by Batista, you know, I was like, well, you know, the, the Mets ain't so good at doing right by their players. <laughs> Anything that could possibly generate a smidgen of like, you know, the Mets treat their players well, <laughs> um, coverage, uh, couldn't hurt. Uh, I, no, yeah. not at all. There was like zero, zero downside to trading him, and yeah, like I'm not going to pretend I, I think the player to be named later we're going to be, you know, talking about his, you know, being named to the All Star team, someday. But uh, right. you know, yeah, there's no reason not to, and you know, even like just to make me feel, make us as fans feel like, you know, they're paying attention, they know they're out of it, they're. Try, you know, they're throwing darts at the board and trying to improve the team. They, you know, they, they haven't fallen asleep at the wheel. Well, as I said, one of the, one of the three GMs is awake at the wheel a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. You know, we um, we've been talking about this um, this concept of you know, do you want to do you want your players to tank? Do you want your team to tank because of the you know, because of draft picks or because of forcing management's hand or whatever. But what's really interesting is that the Mets have looked pretty good the last month and a half. Like, you know, they just took two of three from the Dodgers, two of three from the Giants. They they lost the series, only took one from the Cubs, but you know, a, a battered ball here or there would have would have had them win that DeGrom start mm-hmm. and they would have taken two or three from there. That Cubs series, I believe, was the last series, was the first series the Mets had lost since the first series of August. Nice. That's that's a pretty nice stretch. Yeah. What what do you do? You make anything of that? Um. You know, I I mean, I don't know if I make a whole lot beyond. Um, you know, beyond as we discussed, the pitching is very impressive. And yeah, you know, even though Jacob Degrom, the, the Mets and Jacob Degrom are doing their best to try and prove otherwise. You know, getting excellent sustained starting pitching keeps you in ball games and keeps you in series. You know, you don't give up your starters don't give up more than four runs a game for a calendar month. You know, hopefully you're not going to go five and twenty one like you did in right, yeah. June. Um, you know, I. I as I said, you know, like obviously the you know the midseason malaise brought on you know a whole new LOL, LOL Mets. Uh, you know the sky is falling. 
mentality. And yeah, I have found myself kind of like, you know, guys, in case you haven't been paying attention, and, and apparently you haven't, you know, that's been playing some good ball lately, <laughs> like enjoyable ball. As I said, I've, I've enjoyed watching some of these games. Um, when you mentioned tanking, you know, I said I, I really have a hard time rooting against my team. Uh, last year was felt so bleak for some reason. I wasn't rooting against them, but I, I would kind of just look and be like, well, you know, now we'll get the seventh pick instead of the eighth pick or whatever. Um, this year, I just, I think, Partly because the Royals and the Orioles and there's like two or three teams that are, you know, not catchable and it's not not a right. thing anyway. And partly because they're just things to root for. They're, you know, obviously Jake DeGrom above and beyond all of that. Uh, but, you know, they're, as I said, there are young players that to me it's more important if we, you know, we go like, you know, 18 and 10 this month and you know, and McNeil and Rosario and Nimmo and Conforto look great and Wheeler and Syndergaard and DeGrom finish strong and healthy and Mats and, you know, I I don't know. I I feel like it's quelled some, you know, negative narratives. It's, you know, it's made me feel a little, there there did seem a point like, I know people were piling on where I was like, oh, maybe Mickey is a little overmatched or, you know, know, it's, it's made me feel a little, it's just made things feel a little more stable and they're just, I, I, right now I'm more interested in the players on the team. I, you know, they're going to be here and I think a lot of them are likable and some of them have shown promise. Uh, So yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not an optimist. Obviously I'm, in the blue and orange. You're a Mets fan. I'm a Mets fan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm being redundant, but yeah, like, it's, I make a little something of it. I'm not, you know, I'm not getting, not getting my season ticket plan because I want to make sure I'm first in line for playoff tickets in 2019. But I think it, it feels nice. You know, I, I am encouraged enough. And like I said, if I, I sometimes limit that a little to the, the individual players and it's like, great, you know, Nimmo's, you know, Nimmo closes the year strong, you know, all those players I named. If, if if most of them are closing the year strong, I'm going to feel like, okay, you know, we do have something we can build on. And it's not, it's not ridiculous to say, you know, with some moves, not like a whole, you know, there, there definitely seemed to be a building crescendo of, you know, people, maybe they need to tear the whole thing down. I, I think it'd be a little harder to make that argument right now. Uh, not impossible by any means. No, that that's an excellent point. You know, I, I think that what is Conforto? Did he just hit his twentieth home run? It might have even been twenty one. Twenty one, and Nimmo's at fifteen or sixteen right now. Yep. You know, Nimmo has to be considered a surprise, no matter what, right? No one thought that he would necessarily be this player at this point in his career. Correct. Conforto's having a down year batting average perspective, even though I don't really put a lot of stock in that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you looked at Conforto in April and May and then said he'd have over 20 home runs in the early, in the early part of September, mm-hmm. you'd probably be okay with that. You know, uh, a bunch of players have sort of bounced back from poor starts. Even Rosario. You know, Rosario has looked so much better in the last month or so <laughs> than he did when he first came up. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think you can look at the improvements of these younger players and, and discount them at all. So I'm with you. I, I think if the team plays strong down the stretch, 
and they're playing strong because of the performances of the young players, that's 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 a win for everybody. Yeah, like I, I, you know, maybe if you know, maybe Jeff or Steve could give us more insight. But to me, like, yeah, picking seventh or picking tenth, I mean, you know, the the vagaries are. It's interesting, and when it gets to draft time, I love it. But you know, I, I, I think it's much more important and more enjoyable seeing these players, uh, you know, that we've just named these younger players improve. You know, I agree with you wholeheartedly on Conforto. You know batting average-wise, not caring, you know, that he's looked, I think, really good, uh, you know, good to really good the last month or two, and, you know, it's, I think it's a little lost in the shuffle that, you know, he you know, he came back from a major injury, <laughs> perhaps the Mets rushed him, go <laughs> yeah. crazy, uh, and... And had almost no spring training. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, he's someone that, like, yeah, like, I think it lasted just long enough that I was like, oh, my God, was last year the anomaly? Uh, you know, like, or, you know, and now I feel once again, like, you know, yeah, no, he's he's a great young kid. And, you know, all the things that I think, you know, the Mets are frustratingly slow with, like, I was watching today's game, and even though they didn't, you know, they weren't ripping Ryu all over the park. I mean, you know, I feel like Nimmo has made some strides. Conforto has hit lefties quite well. Uh, McNeil has like you know I, I you know all of the you know are these guys just platoon players or limited like again this is this is the fun and the advantage of let them play and root for your team and you know let, let's see the young guys let's see you know how much how much wishing upon a star are we you know how much work there is to do in the off season and how much is you know unfounded hope and how much is no like you could be you know you should feel comfortable putting Jeff McDill out there as your second baseman and you know feeling like he's a solid major leaguer who could develop into something more yeah yeah this is um this is sort of treading ground that Allison and I talked about a few weeks ago and that Chris and I touched on a tad bit last week Mm -hmm. but I think it's just we're in a nice place right now because it seems like the Mets have realized the advantages of starting their younger players over their older ones, mm-hmm. except when it comes to Dom Smith. <laughs> yes. But I can't really blame them on that either. Right. I, you know, look, it's, you know, it's okay to have, a, you know, have an opinion on your player, but yeah, I probably don't telegraph it quite as much or maybe have traded, you know, if, if it was as it was becoming clear, maybe Alonzo was, you know, people were a little higher on him or, or just that they were low on Smith. I don't know. But, yeah, the, you know, yeah, the treatment of him is not ideal. But, uh, or you know, treat. But I, yeah, it, it's you're spot on. Uh, it's late in coming, but it's been good to watch. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's a sea change for me, even from last year. I mean, last year I just wasn't enjoying watching the Mets late. Like, it felt like a chore. Like, yeah, this week I've really been like, oh, Thor's pitching, you know, Thor's pitching against the Giants. I want to watch that. Uh, yeah. Late game against the Dodgers. I'm going to I'm gonna stay up and watch that. Um, you know, so I think that speaks to something. All right. I'm going to throw a few numbers at you. We're going to play an over-under game. Okay, you ready? Okay. Uh Two wins. Does Degrom get more or less than this for the rest of the season? Hmm. Over or under two? 
What is the? How many games are left? Uh, they have five, six starts. Uh, I think he'll have at least four. At least four. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over. I, I, I'd love to go push, but that seems like the coward's way out. <laughs> give me like 1.5 or something, so I can't, uh, I'll, I'll say over. I just, I, you know, even though all evidence to the contrary, I, I can't believe this historic season of pitching that you will not get to double-digit win. So I'm, I'm gonna say over and okay. be wrong, but whatever. <laughs> okay, 35 plate appearances for Dom Smith. Gonna say under. I think so, too, and I think that's crazy. It really is, yeah. Even though, again, I am not a believer in Dom Smith necessarily, I don't see how you can't find 50 plate appearances for him between now and the end of the season. Mm-hmm. That seems insane. All right. Uh, I'm setting the number at four. Jay Bruce home runs. Hmm. <clears throat> I'm going to say under. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't see you a know, few garbage time... Uh, Home runs wouldn't surprise me. I, I'm, I'm being optimistic and thinking, you know, Flores will eat into his plate appearances, maybe a couple of Dom Smith starts. I, I know we'll see him in the outfield a little bit somewhere. I, I'm just, I'm going to say under. All right. Um, same number four, Jay Bruce errors. <laughs> um, I'm going to be nice and say under. Just, just uh, you know. I don't know. They're you know they'll they'll find ways around it. Generous official scoring. I, I think there's going to be some brutal play. I just I'll I'll say <laughs> under four errors. Okay. Um, all right. So we've already seen Jacob Degrom start to use the Jeff McNeil bat without the knob on the end. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to set the over under at one for additional players besides Degrom and McNeil to use the caveman bat. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say under. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say no one. Uh, do, wait, well, pitchers count? Yeah, of course, pitchers. pitchers do count. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll still go. I'll still go under. Um, you know, may, maybe one. I don't. Players are, seem reluctant to change. Uh, you know, I could, I see a pitcher doing it. You know, I could see Thor doing it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Though. Thor like it looks more like Molinier. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see, uh, a couple more for you here. Um, let's go with uh, three, and that's the number of David Wright starts. Oh, David. Um, I'll say under. Uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd say three would be the max if they, you know, he's probably not going to play three days in a row either. Like, I'm thinking at this point, if we see him, it'll be that last homestand. Uh, I... I optimistically, uh, you know, popped a couple of cheap tickets for Friday and Sunday just in case. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was unlikely. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, See, I think that he comes back the next homestand, and I think he's going to make one start a series. Okay. Well, they're going to try. I, I don't know if we'll make it to the end of the, se- of the season that way, but I think they're going to try and get him to start a series. So I would take the over there. Um all right, let's put it at. Um, so you, you think he will come back, uh, like for this weekend? Do you think they'll, or do you mean like the final homestand? I think either this. See, I, I think they, I think they want to get him more than 
more than one weekend <clears throat> series. So I, I could see them because the rosters ex- have expanded already, right? So yeah. if they bring him back this weekend, he can play one, two, three. He can basically start four, four games at one game a series, and they can use those games to to sell out City Field. Yeah, or or to come damn close, especially if there's the threat of retirement at the end of this. Yeah. Um, I hope you're. You know, I hope you're right. I, you know, I had I had this fear that it would be like the last game of the season or the last week series of the season. Uh, but the more David Wright, the better. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I agree. Um, why do you, all right? Let, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Why, why, no, go for it. Why do you think uh, like they're being? I mean, aside from just the answer being Mets, why do you think they're being so like kind of weird and? you know, about his recovery and the targets he has to meet, and, you know, I don't know, it seems like just perfectly, uh, purposefully obfuscating a bit. Uh, I mean, the obvious answer for me, and I think the, the probably too cynical one, is they don't want to, they don't want to pay him, they want to collect the insurance more than they want to see him play. Right. I hope that's not the case. I do too. That, that, I guess that's why I wonder though, like is, you know, I mean, they can't, they can't not play him, right? <laughs> like, because just, it feels like both of those are financially related. It's like, you know, either we want to collect the insurance money or we want David Wright gate money. You know, they can't have it both ways, can they? <laughs> I mean, they can try to the Mets, right? Yeah, you're right. Um, but no, I, um, I think part of it is just that I don't think that the Mets necessarily want the same thing Wright wants from the end of his career. I think it means a whole lot for Wright to make it back mm-hmm. more than anything else. Yeah. And I don't think the Mets care as much about Wright making it back. Yeah. But- they care more about the financial aspect of it. Of course, uh, I, I, would, I wish they could just be coldly cynical and you know embrace the financial side of him coming back and playing and how much it means to us. Can't they just right. can't they just realize we we will milk them dry with the David Wright return and give us? I mean, if if they said that Wright was retiring at season's end. Do you know anyone who's not trying to get a ticket to that last game? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have, you know, I, I have tickets for that. And yeah, I, as, oh God, I, yeah, if I, even if he's not, I feel like it's going to be de facto treated like it's possible. Uh, right. But if it's announced, oh my God, there will be people outside, you know, <laughs> offering a decent chunk of change for those tickets, I would think. Absolutely. I will not. You know, but... <laughs> uh, Chris and I talked about this uh, last week. But, you know, I was at the last Piazza game as a Met. Mm-hmm. And uh, that game had this really celebratory feel to it. Mm-hmm. That even though people were sad that he wasn't going to be a Met anymore, I think everybody realized that, you know, his best days were behind him and that it made sense for the <laughs> Mets to move on. I think that goes tenfold for Wright. Everybody loves Wright. Everybody wants Wright to be happy. Nobody has the, or not nobody, very few people have the negative thoughts with Wright that, for whatever reason they had with Piazza, whether it was the gay panic or the, you know, 
the fact that he was more reserved than maybe people wanted him to be. I I don't know. I never I never understood why anybody could be a Mets fan and dislike Mike Piazza. Yeah, but you're actually slightly introducing a new concept to me. I mean, I, I remember some of that, but like, yeah, I was at that game also. That was like the Rocky blowout, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a love. I, I think one thing that to me would be different about David Wright. I mean, yeah, he does seem more universally beloved. You're correct. You know, with Piazza, like you said, it it felt like a felt like that rare like Seinfeld breakup of like, well, this is best for us, but it's also best for you, you know, and right, yeah. and thank you for everything and good luck. Uh, whereas, you know, David Wright, I think there'll be just such a palpable, poignant sense of like, this was our Hall of Famer, like you know that he should have been, you know. Should have been retiring. Well, Piazza's a Hall of Famer, but this is our, you know, right. you know, life lifelong lifelong Met, like twenty five hundred hits. You know, probably going to Cooperstown has a World Series ring. Something, you know, I, I think there's more of a sense of <clears throat> both celebration of what he did, but like uh, nostalgia and a bitterness about what could have been. And I, I I'm being a bit overly dramatic. This <laughs> is baseball. Um, but you know, like no, but yeah, he he is becoming more and more clearly the Mets Don Mattingly. Yes, yes. Uh, spinal stenosis aside, mm-hmm. you know, he's just—it's really becoming clear about that. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's just going to break my heart one way or the other. I know. Um. But anyway, all right. Last number I'll throw out to you. Okay. The number is six. And that is, will we get more or less than six Amazing Avenue contributors at whatever we, whatever we pick this damn game to go to? Um, hmm. I'm going to. All right, I hope you're all listening. I'm going over. Uh, um, <laughs> through absolutely no evidence. This is. Here, I'm flipping over from Met fan uh, skepticism to Met fan believing. I believe you. <laughs> um, you gotta believe. You gotta believe. Yeah, we we are gonna pick that date this week. I promise. It's just been a, a sort of crazy month for all of us. Hello, Mason Avenue listeners. Allison McCake here with another installment of the Degrometer and the Nemometer, where we follow two of our favorite Mets, Jacob Degrom and Brandon Nimmo, both of whom are having fantastic seasons. So let's start with Jacob Degrom as he continues his quest for the Cy Young. Um, he started on Monday against the Dodgers. Um, he pitched six innings and he allowed one run on just two hits. Um, he walked a batter and he struck out six. The only run came on a Justin Turner solo homer. Um, this time, DeGrom wasn't able to go quite as deep into the game as he has been doing, mostly because his defense made multiple errors behind him again. Um, but ultimately, that didn't cost DeGrom any runs because he buckled down and kept the Dodgers at bay. Um, it's still an extremely impressive outing against arguably the most powerful lineup in the National League at this point. Um, most importantly, it was DeGrom's 25th straight start, allowing three runs or fewer, which breaks the record set by Doc Gooden in 1985, a season in which Doc uh, finished with a 1.53 ERA, which is incredible. So we're starting to see kind of the first Met since Doc to even reach that stratosphere of pitcher, and it's pretty historic. We were talking, I was chatting with some people on Mets Twitter and on Amazing Avenue as well about how, you know, this is the sort of season and the sort of pitcher you tell your grandkids 
kids about that you got to see in his prime. It's starting to be that level of amazing, and it's really, really fantastic and special to watch. Um, of course, though, DeGrom, once again, didn't get the win for his effort. <laughs> the game was tied when he exited, and once again, he drove in the Mets' only run to that point. But unlike last time against the Cubs, the Mets, actu- the Mets actually won the game, um, thanks to a pinch-hit three-run homer by Brandon Nimmo in the ninth. And, of course, we'll get to Brandon Nimmo in a little bit. Um, this start lowered uh, DeGrom's ERA very, very slightly, infinitesimally, in like the thousandth thousandth decimal place, but he still holds a steady uh, league-leading ERA at 1.68. His ERA lead is now over half a run at this point, um, because Aaron Nola allowed three home runs and four runs total against the Cubs over the weekend, so his ERA uh, was raised to 2.23, and Scherzer stands at 2.28. So now let's talk about war, war for a second. Um, so Fangraph's war, um, DeGrom is in first place, uh, and he has been holding steady at first place in Fangraph's war at 7.3 war. Uh, Scherzer's at 6.2, and Nola's at 5.4. But on the other hand, baseball reference war for pitchers, um, it's kind of reversed. So Nola is in the lead by a significant margin, and that at 9.2 war. Scherzer's at 8.3 war, and DeGrom's at 8.2 war. Um, so I've talked a lot this season in this segment about how DeGrom's um, Fangraphs War and Baseball Reference War are wildly different. So I'm going to like very briefly explain why that is for a second for people that may be curious. Um, and if you already are intimately familiar with how these things are calculated, you could just skip on over this bit. Um, but basically the chief difference between how FWAR and BWAR are adjusted uh, are adjusted. They are both adjusted for ballpark and defense, but the but the way that they're adjusted for defense is very different. So um, for Fangraphs War, that's based on fit. FIP, which stands for fielding independent pitching, and FIP basically assumes that for every ball put in play other than a home run, the outcome is determined by team defense and random chance. Um, whereas baseball reference uses team defensive runs saved to adjust for defense. Um, so essentially, uh, baseball references defensive adjustment is multiplying the ratio of balls put in play allowed by the pitcher to balls put in play allowed by the team, and that whole ratio is multiplied by the team's defensive runs saved. So whether you favor FWAR or BWAR basically depends on whether you feel like anything that is not a strikeout, an infield fly, a home run, or a walk, or hit by pitch is outside of the pitcher's control completely or not. If you believe it's outside of the pitcher's control completely, you favor more of the FIP adjustment when you favor FWAR. If you believe, if you don't believe that, then you favor more of the BWAR adjustment. Um, I hope that makes sense. Um, but call me biased, but it seems like this season, as someone who's been watching pretty much every DeGrom start and even a fair amount of NOLA's and Scherzer starts as well being in the um, Washington Nationals market. Um, FWAR has been truly just a better reflection of the truth this year. Whether that makes it a better metric overall is something to be debated. I'm not saying that by any means. Um, they both have their strengths and weaknesses, but it just seems like this season, as far as the uh, National League pitchers are concerned, it seems like FWAR has been a better reflection of the truth. Um, so make of that what you will. Um, I still think DeGrom is the best pitcher in baseball. Um, whatever For whatever it means, right now his odds in Vegas of winning the Cy Young are the highest of the three. Um, and people have been talking about how Nola's mediocre start recently did did take a hit on his chances. So it's coming down to the wire now. Each guy has about four or five more starts left probably closer to four now. Um, So we're really getting down to the wire now. So everybody's watching intently to see what happens here. 
Um, so meanwhile, let's shift gears and talk about Brandon Nimmo. Um, it's a happy nemometer this week. Um, this past week, he's had 20 plate appearances. He's had six hits, uh, which are three singles, two doubles, and a home run. That home run was, of course, the game-winning pinch hit three-run homer in the game DeGrom started on Monday as he ran around the bases smiling as usual and in with record pace. Um, he's been red hot uh, since coming off the DL. He's got also got three walks, three RBIs, three runs scored, and that's all good for a 199 WRC plus in his past in this past week. Um, and all of this is despite the fact that the Mets have been pa- facing a lot of left-handed pitching lately. Um, infuriatingly, because of this, uh, Mickey Calloway seems to feel the need to drop Nimmo down in the lineup. So he's been batting seventh and eighth lately, which, you know, got to bat your best hitter seventh. <laughs> but he continues to excel despite that. Um, and for the record, just to set things straight, Nimmo, Nimmo holds a very solid 113 WRC plus against lefties this year. So it's not like he's been totally hopeless against left-handed pitching and that all of his amazing stats are because he's mashing righties. That's not the case. I mean, he has splits, but they aren't as pronounced as one might lead you to believe. Um, overall in the season, Nimmo is slashing 272, 391, 507, and 443 plate appearances with 16 home runs, 68 runs scored, 43 RBIs, 8 stolen bases, and this is all good for a 149 WRC+. That is third in the National League behind just Matt Carpenter and Christian Yelich. And those are two guys seriously being considered for the NL MVP. Um, although I think that they should give DeGrom the NL MVP, along with the Cy Young, along with the Medal of Honor, along with, you know... The Nobel Peace Prize. Everything. He should he should just be everything. <laughs> but anyway, Nimmo's uh, 3.6 Fangraphs war is actually 14th in the NL. So he's sneaking up the overall leader in Fangraphs war. He's, he might crack the top 10 by the end of the season. Who knows? Um, and he's third among NL outfielders in, in Fangraphs war, um, behind only Yelich and Lorenzo Cain. Um, who is getting a pretty big boost for his defense. Um, and his 151 OPS plus is second in the NL behind only Matt Carpenter. So these are pretty impressive things. And the fact that the Mets have been facing so many lefties, he's still mashing. He didn't come uh, off the DL and straight into a slump this time. You know, really looking in this last month of the season for Brandon Nimmo to finish strong. And that should give the Mets some hope going into next year, obviously along with DeGrom and the rest of the rotation. Um, it should be noted, even though this is the DeGrommeter and the Nemometer, Wheeler and Syndergaard are both in the top 10 in, in FOR for pitchers as well. So like three of the top five pitchers in the National League are Mets now. So that's pretty cool. Um, combined with Nimmo, that kind of gives you a little bit of hope for 2019. Um, obviously, there is a lot to be depressed about, thinking about the Mets' future, but there are some things to be excited about. And DeGrom and Nimmo are two of the chief things. So um, hopefully I'll join you next week with another happy uh, DeGrometer and Nimometer as it has been this week. Take care. folks that does it for another installment of amazing avenue audio thank you so much for listening we truly appreciate it and this was a super fun show as always please go to amazingavenue.com 
we put up a lot of great stuff this week. Uh, Rob mentioned the piece by Jonathan about the last game of the 51 season. That's fantastic. We also have a great piece by Dave about how Mets fans and the Mets themselves are doing David Wright dirty. Well, especially the Mets themselves. I guess we'll let the fans off the hook for now. Um, plus looks at the Grom's most recent starts and lots more. So go to Amazing Avenue to check all that out. You can also find Amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can go to blogtalkradio.com and get this show directly from them, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. We ask, though, if you use Apple Podcasts to please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us quite a bit. And you can follow everyone from this week's show on Twitter. Brett Saberhagen is at Brett Sabes, B-R-E-T-S-A-B-E-S. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Rob is at Wolf RR. Uh, Allison is at Petite PhD. Uh, I should say, by the way, with Wolf, that's Wolf with two Fs. So Rob is at, at W O L F F R R. Allison's at Petite PhD. And Steve is at Steve Saipa. So by next week, we will have a game picked out for a meetup. This might also double as an Amazing Avenue Audio episode 300 party. We're not really sure yet. I promise you. We'll have those details by next week. And until then, let's go Mets.